How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Dr. Joe, you know, is there anything going on in the medical community these days? What what is happening in the medical community these days? Are they anything? going batty? Uh, that's a catchy joke. Uh, uh, yeah. First um, one's on the board. I know. Well, you know, I I think a lot. Are of we allowed to joke about this? Because I'm feeling like you can't oh, joke about this. But you know, you can and you can't. I mean, part of uh, I mean, our show in a little bit is all going to be about humor and how Thank humor goodness. helps relieve stress. And stress increases your risk of getting an illness because it lowers your immune system. So, mm. so the less stress you have, the better. But at some point, we're going to look back on this and go, okay, so what did we learn? I think that that the response of shutting things down right now, right on the edge of hysteria, but it's certainly not unreasonable because we don't really know about the transmission. I mean, we know that the coronavirus, you know, COVID-19 is transmitted. It's an airborne illness and you can get it on, you know, pick up airborne things, even though you don't think about picking up air. Uh, if you touch something that somebody else has mistakenly sneezed on, and then you touch your mouth, your eyes, whatever, you can, you can get it. So, and we're going to learn a lot about supply chains. We're going to learn a lot about self-sufficiency. I think because all these points of failure we're discovering, like relying on China alone for like not what 97% of our antibiotics. Yep, and and that can shut down overnight. We learned. Yeah. I've learned that a lot of people that I know don't know how to wash their hands appropriately. Yeah, I guess so. That sickens me thoroughly. <laughs> that was a pun. Then nip it then. Bringing it. Bringing yeah. it. What up? Good to be back, guys. Missed you. But but it really, you know, it really is, um, as the World Health Organization says, it's a pandemic. So what does that mean? It means it's affecting everyone. And again, we can either recognize that this is an opportunity for us to all come together because it is affecting everyone. Remember, small changes have big effects. You control no one. You influence everyone. For those who can't see, Tom is, is washing his hands right now with some Purell. Right? I prefer Germex. I like the sound. It makes me think of Christmas. But <laughs> that's the idea is you actually are going to influence people. So please the way you tend to your own self and your own hygiene and just be aware that you're having an influence on other people so if you think you may have coronavirus or any illness you just don't go in public right or you don't go and and breathe on someone so i walked out of a building today and uh, i had it was an eye doctor and i had my eyes dilated hmm. and typically when i walk out into the sun i sneeze Huh. I sneezed. And? There was four or five people that shot me glares. Wow. And I felt as though I had to tell them it was the sun. Right. I am not a carrying member of the coronavirus team. 
So is that an insight? Isn't that an insight into the people time? are hyper vigilant? And now they think you're a vampire. So yeah, well that might be true though. But maybe that's an insight into the sort of prejudice that some people feel all the time. Right. Just walking by, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It, and and that's that's what I'm hoping that we can use this for. I mean, can we springboard this? worldwide potential crisis into a way of coming together and understanding each other more and appreciating how much we really have in common as opposed to all those things we spend time on thinking that separate us. Look, we're all susceptible to the same diseases. Right. So how does that make us different? I mean, the, 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 obviously the risk is that one group will say, well, you have more disease than me, so stay away. And this is, this is another concern. You know, we're not going to start triaging people and isolate people. Quarantining somebody because they're ill is not the same thing as locking them up because you think they've done something wrong. It's just a way that we we have to protect ourselves because we don't know enough yet. That's what science is for. That's what we're trying to figure out. So there are certain things that you can do. Wash your hands. Don't cough from people. If you think that you have been exposed to the virus, go tell somebody, never worry alone. But there's also got to be some humor in here, don't you think? Yeah, well, wh where there's stress, there's humor. There's no question about it. And the anxiety is a, at a maximum right now. I mean, people are maxed out because every five minutes you're getting an email of, of new protocol or s cancellation or right. some other ah, moment. Yeah. It's really interesting. And everyone has a take on it, but the, uh, but the overriding uh, theme is wash your hands. And it's, and it's fascinating the amount of people that um, didn't realize that beforehand. <laughs> it's know. a fact that it seems so new to people. Yeah. I, I just can't even. We all, we've all seen people just walk from the stall to the door, though. I don't know about you guys, but I say something. To those people. <laughs> you, I you say something. Where are you going? <laughs> you, oh, no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, kidding. I'm, I'm standing kidding. alone here. <laughs> You're on an island. You're going no, to some true, weird right? places. All the time. Yeah. Right. People don't think about it. And yet this is one of the fundamental rules of aseptic technique. Aseptic meaning you try not to bring bacteria in. And spoke about it before. The guy who really put this together was not believed, that was Semmelweis back in the 1840s, and no one believed him. And he was right. So it, it really is a simplest thing, is wash your hands. And it doesn't right. need to be, honestly, it doesn't need to be Purell or, or all these, just some soap. Right. Just get some soap, wash your hands, try to count to 20, you know, two sets of 10, what are your thoughts on those air on air drives, though? Because I've always kind of thought that those were a little gross. Yeah, they, nah. They, don't they push bacteria up from the floor? Yeah, I was never a big fan of, of the... Really? Yeah, the ones where you... First of, all, first of all, everybody knows that you've just done something, right? Because it's got this huge noise. I mean, you can be in your own private little bathroom at you know, a restaurant thinking nobody knows what you've done, and all of a sudden... <laughs> What do you mean? It was you humor. Washed your hands. It was humor. Oh. That you did a <laughs> did a PP or a All right. <laughs> but also in the blade things with the. Oh, those. I can't stand those things. Oh, so, so can like we just can we just talk about the medical part of this though? Okay. Like, is there 
an overreaction going on right now? I mean, is this a normal reaction to a virus that's spreading rapidly, right? A pandemic. Okay, I got it. But is this I a think, little overblown, maybe? I, I, again, I, I don't know that anybody can really say that. I think what we can look at is the reaction and why are we having this reaction. It's an IM. Right, for, for whatever reason, but this this is a socially driven I am right now. Right, everybody is getting involved in this. Part of it is the news cycle. It hasn't left the news cycle for how many days now? You know, like a few weeks. It feels um, like forever. It's every second, like it's nonstop. And it's hitting you in the wallet. It sure is. That is true. It's having a big effect, and you know how big the coronavirus is isn't it remarkable you know what a virus is a virus is is just a piece of rna wrapped around by protein and it enters into a cell another organic cell and takes over its dna and that's how viruses work some people aren't even sure if they're alive because it's just rna it has a particular thing and it takes over the body and then what the body does is it knows it's been infected so it begins to respond with its own immune system and that's why you can get a stuffy nose or a cough you know low-grade fever if you don't have an immune system to respond then the virus can take you over and that's when things can get really bad but to get back to it are we overreacting we're reacting you know it, it for some people, they don't believe in science. Right. Uh, for some people, they may think that this is the best thing that's ever happened. For some people, they're recognizing, you know, when they look at how much smog has decreased over China because the factories are shut down, how quickly the earth is healing itself because of that. I mean, there are all sorts of fascinating things going on. But what do you think? Do you think we're overreacting? Well, anytime the media latches onto something so tightly it creates a massive amount of anxiety and when there's anxiety and then there's uncertainty there's reactions to that and the reactions are usually super negative and right now it's happening to a point where it's frightening right so the stock market is one okay fine if you're in the financial business, you understand it's okay, it's a correction, let's you know, buy more, get in, it's a good deal, everything's on sale, there's a bargain for the stock market. But when you start talking about NCAA canceling their entire um, March Madness and all of the tournaments the NBA and all stopped. of the NBA, NHL, NHL, Major League Baseball, sure, you're, you're, you're trying to contain something, right? But is there an overreaction? Because what you have is you have this massive trickle-down effect of all of the people employed and all of the surrounding businesses. And, you know, it, it, it's frightening. And for a lot of people, sports particularly are a coping mechanism. Right. And without them, it's even more terrifying just in general. Even when 9-11 happened, we at least still had sports to look to for some form of normalcy right. at that time. That's, that's exactly right. Broadway shut down as well. Well, you know, maybe this is part of the contagion, right? Because contagion is not just a virus. The contagion is one behavior eliciting behavior in somebody else. That's mirror neurons. Mm. 
and now you have a massive amount of mirror neurons, but you also have that limbic survival part that's kicking in. You know, I am at risk. And now that part of our brain kicks in, and that's what I'm most concerned about. And that's what I'm least worried about. You know, Tom and I were talking about it right before the show. It's like, you know, just give it to me. Like, get, let, get, let's get it over but with. But I'm also you know? worried gonna... about because the older people in my life. Right. Because I get it, uh, put on some, get some soup, go on, right. uh, fire up the PlayStation for a few days. If, like, say my sister-in-law were to get it or my parents, I don't know what would happen. Right. right. Exactly. And people in our age range, especially from the 20s to 30s and even some of the 40s, we're going to act as carriers, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And that's... That's so what it looks like right now. You feel what is happening and the reaction to what people are doing proactively is the right thing. I think that we have to make some choices, and I would rather err on the side of caution than not. Well said. Um, and it's it's really how we then interpret this uh, and how we're going to use the data that comes of it. Because what I don't want is for people to start blaming each other for right. it and then shunning each other for it and not sharing resources with each other because of that limbic survival mode. That's really what I'm concerned about. And and to point fingers at, at somebody and say, you know, I'm sick because of you, I don't think that's going to help us at all. Right. Oh, but what we can do is say, I can keep you healthy by taking care of myself and washing my hands and being clean and thinking, you know, I don't want to get too close to you. I like you, but I don't want to give you a hug because just in case one of us has something. You know, that I think that's common sense right now. We've known about how to prevent disease for a long time. Here's a disease that's real. It's here. Luckily, I think... It may not be as deadly to many parts of the population, but for some, it is. And that means for the people who are in that safer age bracket, you have more of a responsibility to be sure that other people don't get it. So take that. You control no one. You influence everyone. You get to choose. So what's the end? Where's the light? Well, if the data is real coming out of China, and I don't know if it's real, but what they're saying is that the peak has happened and now there are a few cases being reported every day. Why? I think people are saying it's maybe because the the illness has run its course, enough people have been exposed that they have developed an immune response, which means that they've killed the virus themselves and they're not transmitting it. That's what I hope is happening. But if that's the case, it does mean that, you know, here in the States, unless there's some temperature-driven component to this, that as the temperature goes up, the virus is, you know, less transmittable or doesn't survive. If not, we got a couple of months ahead of us. Well, with that theory, what is the level of folks getting it in the warmer climates? You know, the the Floridas and the Texas, is that a... I mean, is that... that based on any fact that we could potentially get into a 80 degree weather pattern and boom we've killed it I don't think there's enough data to have any fact right now but if you look at the trends of other communicable viral diseases that are upper respiratory infections that certainly has been the trend is that there's flu season we call it that flu season get your shot before the flu season you don't hear that much of people getting the flu in August in Massachusetts because 
perhaps there's, you know, a weather component to it. Or another way to stave this off with a vaccine or some other medical... No vaccine yet. No vaccine yet, but, I mean, obviously they're working on one. They're working on one. But by then, who knows? I mean, I don't want to be so pessimistic about it, but I want to be sure... But you, you see what I'm saying? Like you, somebody coughs now, and they're there's under suspicion. Somebody coughed. Who was it? Doctor Joe. He coughed. It's okay. I'm a doctor. Into the mic now. Everyone listening has it. Right. <laughs> Great. Everybody. So what we're doing for for folks who are maybe listening, I'm I'm getting the the Zoom app on my phone. It's, I, I'm bringing them in. You're bringing them in. But I could be low on battery. Okay. So might be in luck. Stand by on that, Mark. All right. We have a couple of guests coming in. One is a stand-up comedian from New York, uh, Adam Oliensis, and the other is a professor, an, a, a clinician in evolutionary psychology. And I believe they are both available. Are you guys uh, here? You can. Are you guys uh, there? Un- unmuted, Adam. You gonna talk to us there, buddy? I'm gonna try to bring him on your phone as well, <laughs> in case my. Oh, he coughed again. Oh my God. He coughed again. <laughs> Get him out of here. Wait, into my elbow. Get him out of here. I'm feeling very uncomfortable. And the thing is, how do you cough into your elbow and then bump elbows? Use your other elbow. You know, know, one of the things I did want to ask you, do you think that the the custom of shaking hands might actually go away based on this? Oh, that's that's perfect. Honestly good, though, because handshakes can be annoying because it's... A lot of people are tryhards with their handshake. Tryhards. Yeah. That term. Like they're trying to crush your bones to prove how dominant you are. Like, come on. See, Adam. I cannot hear Adam. Adam, Adam bottom, are you bottom there? left, you've got a mute button. You want to unmute. He's there. He's funny, too. I saw him on YouTube. He's great. By the way, we're on YouTube. Did you Adam know we're is on there. YouTube? We'll just start talking about him. We will. We'll just start talking about him. So let me tell you how I met Adam, seeing that we're talking about him while, you're, while Adam's figuring this out. Hey there. Hi. How are you? Good. Adam's here. I am here. Dan's here, too. And Dan's here, too. We've got Adam and Dan. Adam. Wow. Thank you, guys. Hey, sorry about that technical difficulty. Um, but, you know, once you have one technical difficulty, they're, they're sort of catchy. Uh, but anyway, um, boom. We, were, so, we were having so, uh, a chat in the green room just, uh, you know, are you there? I'm here. What are we doing? And uh, yeah, we didn't really uh, we didn't really get to know each other yet, but uh, but here we are now. That's great. So you guys are here, and um, listen, while while I've got you here, let's do a radio show. So uh, we obviously I don't know if you've heard what we're talking. About. We were talking about the coronavirus, um, but but what I also what is that? I haven't heard of that. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's around. Some people have it with Lyme. Spread uh, through toilet paper. Lyme disease. That's, that's, that's a, a new joke going around. You Would you like new some joke. Lyme? Well, yeah. Steve Connor told me, and I just want to give Steve the, the credit. Would Steve? you like some Lyme disease with your coronavirus? Oh, yeah. Did yeah. you hear John Travolta got it? John Travolta? Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Yeah. John Travolta. Oh, John Travolta, too. Oh, but then they found out it was just Saturday Night Fever. Oh! And he's staying alive. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> Daily Double. Yes, well, let's start with that. Gentlemen, if you wouldn't mind telling our listening audience a little bit about yourselves, let's start with you, Adam, and then we'll go to Dan. Adam, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, Well, I'm a comedian uh, in and around the New York City area, and uh, uh, I 
I've spent a long time in show business as an actor and a writer and a producer. And uh, I started doing stand-up uh, just before my 50th birthday uh, because I it was a puzzle I always wanted to uh, to play around with. And I've been doing it about 10 years and uh, sort, of, sort of kind of making a living at it and uh, uh, have a new album out and and uh, just enjoying enjoying the comedy lifestyle. A new album? Let's let's get right to that. You want to tell folks how to get your album, what it's called? Uh, sure, it's called Aged Wine, W-H-I-N-E, like a complaint. And uh, you can get it at, uh, at my website, adamoliensis.com, uh, or, uh, or on Amazon or Pandora or any of, any of the streaming or, or purchase places that you can go on the Internet. To look for a, just look up Aged Wine, uh, you'll find it. Love it. Aged wine. W-H. Yeah. And, and Dan Glass, licensed clinical psychologist, evolutionary behavioral science researcher. Tell us a bit about yourself. Cause I'm, now, just, you know, Dan and I have not met yet, so I'm delighted to meet you, Dan. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Thank you. Same here. Uh, great to meet you, and thanks for having me on. So, I, yes, I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm working now in, in private practice in Connecticut. I work with children, adolescents, and young adults. My, I mainly specialize in anxiety disorders, but I do a, a range of different things. But before that, I was uh, an evolutionary uh, scientist and researcher in academia, and um, that may be something that I end up going back to one day, but I like to keep at least one foot in that world. So I have a background in you know, evolution education and evolution uh, applied to human behavior. I mean, I mainly my research was about evolution and clinical psychology, but I have sort of a uh, bit of knowledge about uh, about the, the topic tonight, which is humor. I also am the president of the Applied Evolutionary Psychology Society, uh, or APES, A-E-P-S for short. Love it. Um, you can go to apessociety.org and look up the organization. The idea is uh, to bridge the gap between the evolutionary research community and practitioners, not just of mental health, but of any applied human domain, including mental health, but also education, policy making, uh, and so forth. So uh, that's that's one of the ways in which I, I sort of keep a, keep a foot in the, the old uh, evolution door there. Do you want to tell uh, folks I, real quick what evolutionary psychology is, and then we'll get into the humor topic? Absolutely. So broadly construed evolutionary psychology is just the study of psychology, right, the study of the mind viewed from the lens of evolutionary biology um you can also there, there's uh different people have different definitions that differ a little bit from that some people view evolutionary psychology as a specific way of using evolution to study the mind i don't think that's a a, a definition that i hold to I, i'd like to, to keep it pretty broad and say anytime you're using any sort of evolutionary perspective to uh talk about why humans are the way they are or uh, comparing humans to other species, anything like that, from an evolutionary perspective, I say you are doing evolutionary psychology. Hmm. Makes sense. So I, I have a question for you. Go ahead. Um, for who? This is, this is Adam. I have a question for Mr. Dr. Evolutionary Psychologist. <laughs> um, oh, sure. Uh, I, I uh, have hair that goes out of the front of my nose, and I thought evolution was supposed to be taken care of. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, I'm sure 
Everyone would love it if you described the problem a little bit more. Maybe I can tell you <laughs> what happened there. I, I don't think everyone would love that. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. Right. We, we, are a, uh, we are a mass of um, design, we call them design compromises in many ways, <laughs> right? So uh, we're not all optimally designed. We're sort of uh, evolution works with what it has, just like if you were to open up an old building and see the uh, electrical wiring or the plumbing and the walls doesn't make any sense and it's sort of wrapped in sort of weird ways and why would they do it this way? They did it this way because that's what the plumbing uh, was like before the most recent plumber got there. And evolution is sort of the same way, right? Making the best with what's there. So sometimes we end up with uh, very poor design decisions uh, of our physiology, like the fact that our eye tends to be, uh, is actually wired backward and, and it tends to not be uh, as good of an eyeball as you could uh, dream up if you were starting from scratch. And the same thing is true of our minds. So God is like red green, like just kind of fixing the problem with duct tape as you go. Whoa. Exactly. That's that's a whole nother show, Tom. Whoa. That's whoa. We could get deep into that. So wait, so, so evolutionary <laughs> science and humor. Can you take us back to the evolution of humor? Yes. So there's a lot of different perspectives on that have been um, advanced on why people have a sense of humor. Why what is laughter for? What are jokes for? I wouldn't say that anyone's really cracked the code of uh, here is the one solution, but I'd love to uh, I'd love to um, talk about you know hear some of your uh, some of some of the, the perspectives you've been looking into about uh, humor and evolution, and I can sort of offer a few of them that are that are out there. Um, there's I, I would say there's no um, one thing such as uh, such as humor that we can look at as a unitary construct and say evolution designed the unitary uh, concept of humor for this particular reason. But I would say that's pro there's probably several different types of humor and they may have evolved independently. I would say, for example, uh, laughter is, you know, is one particular uh, trait that humans possess and other species possess laughter or something like laughter as well. And that probably has its own evolutionary history. And then we've got the idea of uh, laughing at particular things that are funny as opposed to just laughing because we're being tickled. And I think that probably has its own evolutionary lineage that's related, as well as the idea of being able to make jokes or to be able to uh, laugh derisively at a, uh, at a target person that we're trying to put down. All of these different things have uh, probably different explanations. One of the ones I like is the, um, the idea that uh, laughter when targeted at somebody or when we make a joke about somebody or when we make fun of somebody, we laugh at somebody's misfortune. The idea that uh, that might function as sort of a, uh, a way that people band together to kind of take someone down a peg or two, right? So um, I think Steven Pinker does a great job of describing this in his, in his book, How the Mind Works, which is a real classic. But um, an example might be um, somebody falls over and people start laughing at him. Now, what determines whether or not the people will laugh at this man who has fallen over or this person who has fallen over. Um, well, it, it, it would really only be funny to people if there was something about that person uh, that, you know, would suggest that he needs to be taken down a peg or two, right? So if you see somebody who is, who is ill, maybe um, can't walk well, maybe has a broken leg, um, a, a young child falling over and hurting themselves, that's not funny, right? 
Whereas uh, you see uh, somebody who, who has a lot of swagger, maybe uh, maybe a, a, a big buffoon of some kind, you know, who you don't like, uh, falls over. That's funny. So um, I, I, I tend to like that um, that explanation because it sort of gives us an idea, first of all, of why certain things are funny and why certain things are not, but also why some people laugh at some types of jokes where some people are the certain people are the targets and other people say that's not funny. Schadenfreude. Right. The idea of laughing at somebody else's misfortune. To make you feel better. To make you, yeah, to make yourself feel better so that you have a level playing field, if you will, right. not just the right. falling joke. There's some really, really funny stuff happening right now on this radio show. Right now. And you don't have to be stressed out or anxious about it or worried that something else is going to be canceled because we're here right now in the studio talking about laughter. Yes, we are. We were With a stand-up comedian. Yeah. And a psychiatrist. Psychologist. Psychologist. Evolutionary. Evolutionary. Who's now doing clinical work directly with kids and anxiety. So I, I wanted to, to come back to this. We, we talked a bit about, you know, some of the evolutionary um, impetus uh, why why humor evolved at all. We're actually talking about laughter, which is the expression and manifestation in many ways of humor. And Adam, you were talking about laughter because you're a stand-up. You must have that experience, I hope a lot, that people are laughing, but it's a little bit different, right? Because you're trying to get them to laugh. It's not necessarily at your expense. As a matter of fact, right. if, they, if they don't laugh, that's at your expense. So, right, right. But, well, that's interesting, Gabby, because uh, uh, the, the, there's a million different kinds of laughs, and you sort of start to read that as a stand-up. You know, some some laughs are more explosive. Some laughs are more empathic. Some laughs are are uh, you know are more surprised. Some you could there's a kind of expected laugh or a social laugh like ah uh, uh, like yeah yeah I get it. So there's all these different kinds of laughs, and that makes me wonder about the the actual sort of social function of the actual laughter itself. You know, like it's one thing to get the joke; it's another thing to actually be moved to laughter. And we really laugh more in the larger the group. As a rule of thumb, is you know the, the IQ of the audience uh, goes down in, in in inverse goes down in direct proportion to the size of the audience going up. Right? I suppose in inverse proportion. So the bigger the crowd, the dumber the crowd. The easier it is to get them to laugh. Huh. And so so the, the bigger a pack we're in, the the easier it is to elicit laughter. And that that makes me wonder about too, like what what what's the actual purpose of the laughter itself? And it seems to me that it's to draw the group together in some Huh. Some to have to share that insight to call the group to share the insight that that whatever that that joke is um, and for whatever purpose it is you know and the, there's the the sort of derisive laugh at someone's expense that you're talking about or the or the kind of more uh, uh, you know more personal shared laugh between a couple um, you know which has a different flavor or or there, there, there's a different kind of laugh when the joke is on me that I tell. Or a different, or a joke when it's on my wife getting her back for one that was on me. There's all these different, all these different flavors of the laughter, and they all seem to me to serve a different function with relationship to the to the pack that's being invited to laugh. I think that's absolutely right. I think that if you ask about the uh, the evolutionary origins of humor, I think one of the obvious places to trace it back to is the origin of the laugh, the ultimate reason for why we laugh, and of course. Nobody knows. Nobody was there at the time, right? But it's been suggested that um, 
that laughter may have evolved from those sort of uh, playful grunts and other vocalizations that our pre-human ancestors might have made when they, let's say, did play fighting or that sort of thing to sort of let each other know, hey, this is, you know, this is not serious. We're having fun here. Mm. So, so that, you know, that might be, uh, if anyone has ever um, interacted with a, a dog who was playing, you know, the dogs are obviously not our ancestors, but, you know, sort of a, a, a sort of a convergent thing may have happened where dogs uh, have this vocalization that they make with their playing that they do not make when they're, let's say, hunting, right? So, um, so laughter, uh, yes, it's basically serving a social communication function there. And it's not hard to, uh, to imagine from that point that it may have evolved into other social communication functions to serve a, a range of different functions as you're as you're suggesting adam and i think that um the uh, other thing that's interesting about the other thing that's been proposed about laughter one of the, the several different mechanisms the idea of it uh signaling relief right signaling yeah. everything's okay here there's no problem here right right and uh that sort of falls into that uh, that sort of basket there and that's a response to the incongruity component where there's something that that doesn't quite fit and make sense here and that can seem humorous to us um those those parts of who we are as human beings are really important because again it binds us together i don't know of any group any tribe anywhere that doesn't have some sense of humor right we, and and this for me is is yeah, the, the the belgians the well, and, and maybe the French, but that is well, that's true. But 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 they but the Belgians will laugh at someone else, especially over chocolate. Um, they Cote are one of the best chocolates in the world, but and, and waffles, Bel Belgian waffles. So here we are. The other thing, of course, is the neuroscience around humor. Um, what's it feel like when you're laughing? Right. right? So like the stress relief of it, right? And I'm just wondering, Dad, from from treating folks with anxiety, is there a role for humor in the treatment of anxiety? Sure, it's um, you know, it's a it's an interesting relationship actually, because depending on what stage you are in the treatment, uh, laughter has different roles, and the desire to evoke laughter uh, differs. For example, you know, it's a laughter, I would say, as, as we're sort of alluding to, is a critical part of human-to-human -human bonding. So when you are actually establishing rapport with a client, especially it's especially important with a young client that there be fun and warmth and uh, some sense of security. And one of the ways to do that for the reasons that we've just been outlining is engaging in humor, engaging in laughter and all that. So that's, that's one Oh, that's one place where humor and laughter come in. Another one is, um, you know, at certain times you do want to keep clients on their toes, um, especially clients who might be a little bit difficult to engage or whose uh, motivation to be treated uh, is sort of hot and cold. Using humor and irreverence is one of the uh, sort of well-known clinical tools to kind of keep people with you. And then, um, actually, I... I take I I am treating uh, a lot of anxiety clients with with exposure therapy, which is the uh, kind of gold standard for uh, many types of of clinical anxiety that you see. And exposure therapy, the basic rationale for it is getting people used to discomfort, right? The the discomfort of the situations that make them anxious, and let them get used to that. And 
not engage in emotion-driven or avoidant behaviors that they might do otherwise to release that, uh, that tension and not allow themselves to feel it. So we might, for example, uh, take somebody and put them in a situation that, they're, that, that makes them uncomfortable, and at that point, we don't want them to laugh because the whole purpose of exposure therapy is to allow yourself to feel the discomfort without trying to make it go away. And laughter, as we know, is a great coping mechanism for making those uh, sorts of anxieties go away for the moment. And in that particular moment, we don't want that. And so sometimes we tell people, you know, we, we, we might laugh along with them for a second and then remind them uh, if it's a young child. Remember, what we're trying to do is, is feel the, the discomfort, not push it away. So let's see if we can do this with a straight face. So yeah, laughter has a lot of different roles and humor has a lot of different roles um, and, uh, and levels of desirability across the, uh, across the treatment. Yeah, it's, it's really part of, of who we are. I, I certainly will, with frequency, ask my my patients, my child patients, especially towards the end of the session, if they heard any good jokes. Um, and I, I find that, if nothing else, it sort of humanizes me to them and sort of changes a lot of, you know, the, the dynamic. And then kids will tell me, I mean... I think I told you that the seven-year-old told me this joke as he was on his way out. He says, Dr. Schrand, have you seen the new movie Constipation? I said, no. He said, it hasn't come out yet. <laughs> I mean, you know, seven years old. The level of intellect needed. Yeah, and not only not only to, to laugh at a joke, but to create one. Right. So, Adam, I wonder, can you talk a bit about that, about how do, what is your process to create your routine? Uh, well, for me, it's it's uh, it, it kind of goes back to Salinger when he uh, JD Salinger put it. He, he wrote about uh, write what you would like to read. So I look for humor where I find things funny. I mean, something that strikes me as funny, then I try to to, to kind of reverse engineer the joke to to try to give that experience like the the order of understanding that happens or you know to, to, to create for the listener to the joke of, of the order of things that I got in order to come to a laugh hmm. so that that's the fun part of writing the joke is you see what made you laugh and then you have to figure out how that worked on you and then the, the generous part is to try to to step out of the way of you don't want to end up explaining your joke you want to help create the experience that you had for somebody else with you yourself, the writer, the comedian, stepping out of the way so that that person can have the experience you can, that you had, and then that way you or you can help them sort of get the same thing that you got, which is different than being told, right? You have to be shown, and then when they laugh, you know that 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 audience had that experience or something very close to it, and then you're connected in a way that that's as as a writer and performer that that's so satisfying because you bridge that unbridgeable connection to another mind you know you know that if they had the same response you did you've you've shared something in a way that that's really tough to share as a human being any any other way so that, that's the satisfaction of it and it, it takes you know some people can just do it naturally and they have a sort of intuitive intelligence about it and some people have to you know really kind of structure it and build it in a more methodical way Hmm. Interesting. So, uh, can I can I impose on you to give us, you know, maybe a, a minute or two of, of a routine, just so we can uh, hear, it and then maybe try to dissect it down. Well, sure. Since I'm here with with two psych, 
psychologist. Uh, one, one psychiatrist, one yeah. psychologist. It's one much, much worse. It's even and, worse than you thought, Adam. Yeah. Way yeah, worse. Geez. Yeah. Well, I, I grew up in a family that was lousy with shrinks, so I'm, I'm sympathetic to, to your children. Um, so here's why. I, I, uh, I, I have a comedian friend who says performing is the best therapy, but I, I, I don't know. I find my therapy sessions are some of my best performances. <laughs> Good. You know, really, no, I kill in therapy, especially group. I love doing crowd work in group. The one thing I hate, though, is when my shrink hackles. You know, you suck. <laughs> you know, your late payments are just passive aggressive sublimations. Really, I thought they had to be hostile because I hate them. But this, uh, this one time I was complaining to my shrink that my girlfriend's actually not as good in bed as my wife or her, or her sister. And my shrink said, mm, I think she is. <laughs> well, you guys think I should stop seeing my dad as a therapist? <laughs> This is great. So, Dan, um, take it away. How would you interpret Adam right now? <laughs> well, um, I, I would uh, I would sidestep that entirely. Um, <laughs> but I, but I, I would, I'm not uh, paying him. He's supposed to do it. That's right. <laughs> Don't do this for free. The um, the thing that, that stuck out to me the, the idea of um, of intelligence being a requisite for for certain types of humor. Um, there's a couple things there from the evolutionary perspective. The first is, of course, the, the idea of humor as a social signal um, can also be uh, humor as a sort of a way of, um, of sending affiliative messages in order to show group affiliation, right? You make a joke, certain people get it, certain other people don't. Um, you're able to say, okay, here, here's my people, right? Here, here's the, the people that, that get me. So there's, there's and, that and just, going just, on. Just, just to clarify, so affiliation means like people relating to each other. That's right, exactly. Okay. So, um, and a way to exclude in the same same motion. Well, that's right? true. Way to exactly, exclude right. too. Who's, yeah. the, who's the in group and who's the out group? Right, right, right. Um, the other the other evolutionary concept that comes up is because good humor um, can so often rely on intelligence. Um, humor, in and of itself, becomes one of those um, those markers that can be attractive in and of itself, right? Because mm -hmm. um, you're sort of displaying your intelligence and therefore your sort of your quality by yeah. um, by being able to construct things that are that are funny, right? Being able to to, to, to joke, being able to um, to have that as you know, one of your abilities is something that can be you know inherently sexy. Yeah, yeah, and the timing and the time, nailing the timing. The, the really interesting thing is how much more appealing that is during courting than during marriage. Right. <laughs> That's, well, by then you don't need it, right? Well, at least not with... <laughs> but but does that suggest then that there's a genetic component, a, a heritable component, or is it this Talk. nature versus nurture? So, you know, a, a, a child sees a parent being humorous and then they develop that ability themselves? Great question. What do you think, Dan? I would say, like like most human traits, uh, it's both. Yeah. Right? So, um, there have been there have been studies on um, the heritability of humor. I don't actually know uh, what it is found to be off the top of my head, but I do know that um, Things like intelligence, personality, um, interests, social attitudes—all of these things have do have a high level of heritability. And just so we're clear, heritability means that um, the uh, how much of the, the difference in these traits is 
caused by genetic differences. So when something has high heritability means that um, you know, a, lot of the, a lot of the differences in this trait are caused by uh, genetic differences. In other words, um, humor can maybe uh, one of these things that's highly heritable because um, intelligence and interests and personality and all of these other things are highly heritable. And so uh, if you look at twins who are identical twins who are reared apart from each other, you know, separated via circumstance and, and raised in different families, you see that these people tend to have a lot of similarities in the way that they think and act and the things that they like and so forth. Um, and a lot of these have uh, you know, some genetic component. Um, and so that's one of the things that contributes to, to humor, that, that genetic basis. On the other hand, um, uh, nobody really believes anymore that any uh, trait is either one or the other, right. nature or nurture. So it's always, a, it's always that uh, interplay. And so you do, of course, have that critical uh, aspect, the environmental aspect that also plays into it. So that, that's pretty much your answer for everything. Um, Whenever the question "nature versus nurture" is asked, as I'm, as I'm sure uh, y'all well know from uh, being part of this, uh, you know, having done this for so long, right? The way I'd say it is, a, a gene is only as good as its environment, right? I mean, a gene will be expressed in many ways depending on the environment that it's in. That's epigenetics, and, right? And that's part of that is epigenetics. That's right. And the, but can you really trust somebody who's not funny? Um. <laughs> well, <laughs> Adam, do you trust people yeah, who aren't funny? Uh, less, yeah. potentially, but, but less. Uh, you, you raise an issue, uh, what you're talking about with nature versus nurture, it sort of touches uh, something that I've been reading about only as a layperson. You guys probably know more about it. But uh, it's, it seems that there's some heritability of memory based on the, you know, the, the, the relatively new research that I've read, that there that there is a sense like uh, if you're a specialist, that if you have a uh, traumatic event uh, before you can see children, that your children are more likely to suffer sort of, you know, intrinsic uh, traumatic stress-related disorders or, or a higher degree of anxiety. Um, well, there, I know I've read research that there is, rats... There is some truth to, to that epigenetic part. Now, here's the, the, the real problem is that we are just about out of time tonight, but there's so much more um, that we can talk about. Um, Let's Maybe go we'll back. Have them back. Adam, yeah, we, we'd love to have you guys back. Have a good week, and everybody enjoy that virus. Be safe.